are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Morning. Our scripture for today is coming from John 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in, in, called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, is it the Sabbath? And it it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us that is intended to lead us to repentance. Father, I pray now as we reflect on rest, Sabbath, and the Lord of the Sabbath, that you still our own hearts, you still our own anxieties, you still our own fears, and that you do give us great hope that Sabbath that is to come. Father, we pray now that you, through the Spirit of God, soften our hearts to hear the word, to receive the word, to believe the word, to walk in the word. For the glory of the name of Christ, we pray these things in his name. Amen. So we pick up uh, this week exactly where we left off last week. So if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back. But Jesus has just healed a, an official son in John chapter 4, demonstrating his authority over sickness and illness, disease, identifying himself as the giver of physical life, but also the giver of spiritual life. And we enter right into now chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, into this third sign that Jesus will do here in verses 1 through 18. And the next three chapters in the Gospel of John, chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, there's a shift in the narrative of John from a place where there was 
uh, just some reservation about who Christ was in the first four chapters. Now in the next three chapters, there is outright hostility. There is uh, an againstness, so to speak, to Jesus from the Jewish leaders uh, here, as we're going to see even in our text for today. So in looking at our text, we read in verse 1 that Jesus is heading back to Jerusalem again for a feast. They do a lot of feasting uh, in Jerusalem, which is great. Uh, but unlike other places in the Gospel of John, we don't know exactly what feast this is Jesus is going back to. There were three feasts, actually, that were commanded that the Jews observed from the Old Testament. There was the feast, of, uh, the feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Passover, as we know it to be. There was the Feast of Harvest, and there was the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Booths, uh, that's sometimes called. So for one of these three feasts, Jesus is heading back to Jerusalem. And once he arrives in Jerusalem, he passes this pool called Bethesda, which in Aramaic, uh, in our text here, uh, it, it actually means house of mercy, uh, Bethesda. And as we're about to see, this is actually going to be the place of mercy for one particular individual in our message. Uh, and here's a rendering, actually, I think I have a, a picture. Yep. So this is what archaeologists think Bethesda may have looked like. So it was two pools, north, that looks like east and west, it's actually north and south, north and south. Um, and as we see from our text, there are these colonnades kind of surrounding it. And in verse 3 of our text, we see that people would come that were blind and deaf and lame, and they would sit around these pools and hope for a miracle. This thought that these pools had some kind of healing power, and it wasn't uncommon actually for this area of the world for medicinal purposes to be found in bodies of water. Some ancient Witnesses actually from that saw Bethesda said that the pools had a, a reddish tint to them, which would indicate that these pools were actually used for medicinal purposes. But it's obvious from the conversation Jesus is about to have with this guy here in our text in John chapter 5 that the common thought from those around the pools, those that were sick, those that were lame, those that were deaf, that were blind, was that the source of physical healing was actually a supernatural one. And I don't know if you noticed it in your Bibles as we were reading along, even if you were looking at the screen. There's not a verse 4 in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. It's actually omitted. So if you're reading through, it jumps from verse 3 to verse 5. And at the end of verse 3, there's a footnote. It drives you to the bottom of the page, which is what a footnote does. And you read that it says, Some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, the reason this verse is omitted from most of our English translations, except for the KJV, if you got a KJV, you got it right there, full blown right in front of your face. KJV was translated in 1611. It has not been retranslated since 1611. Um, but we found a lot of other ancient scrolls and manuscripts after 1611 that have been more reliable in our translations of the Bible. And so those older scrolls, the ones closer to the time that this book was written, left out verse 4. Verse 4 was not in there. And so probably what happened was verse 4 was kind of inserted later to kind of further explain what was going on in the minds of the people sitting around these pools, that an angel came and stirred up the waters, and maybe even help explain verse 7, which we're going to get to in a second, which says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool of the water when it's stirred up. So to explain what this stirring up was, somebody probably put that in there. But whether it was in there or not, it doesn't really matter in terms of the text. The text still carries weight, validity. It doesn't really change the meaning at all of what's going on. So it's this setting, this context, where we begin to have this interaction between this particular man at this pool and Jesus. 
So read verse 5 with me again. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. Now we're not quite certain what ailment plagued this man. We can make some inferences because he needs somebody to put him in the water. He hadn't gotten there already that he was somehow paralyzed or lame, that he could not get to the water himself. But for 38 years, this man has been affected by disability, waiting for a miracle. And most of us in this room, if not you yourself, we probably know someone or someones who have some kind of chronic illness or disease. Or maybe we know someone who maybe had been in a physical accident some time ago and it's left them physically or mentally impaired since that accident. My grandmother is someone like that. My grandmother, uh, we called her Ma B, Mama Baker. Um, I think it was supposed to be Mama B, but I was the oldest and I couldn't say Mama B, so I said Ma B and it stuck. Um, but I used to hear stories from my dad and my uncles about my grandmother and how she was this, this beautiful piano player. And she would play music in their church and she would play music in their home and just fill the air with just beautiful notes. But I never heard her play the piano like that um, because for most of my life, if not all my life, I can't remember, my grandmother had severe arthritis in her hands. And in fact, arthritis was so severe that for the whole time that I knew my grandmother, her hands were kind of gnarled in the sense. And so the only notes that I ever heard my grandmother play on the piano were what she could play with one finger. And I remember her giving my family her piano when I was probably in the second or third grade um, and taking piano lessons on that piano. But for anyone that's walked through any kind of chronic pain or disability or loss, there's a, a significant sense of, of loss that comes with that, right? Of giving up something that you hold dear. For my grandmother, it was playing the piano. She could no longer play the piano. And there are two responses, two responses from people who have been severely afflicted by long-term disease or illness. The first response is the response my grandmother had. I never once heard my grandmother complain about anything, complain about her pain, complain about her state in life. I mean, when we would go visit her, uh, my family would go visit her on a regular basis, um, she would wake up every morning and make us breakfast out of scratch, not like biscuits out of a can. I'm talking like rolling flour with her gnarled hands, you know, throwing those biscuits into the oven. She never complained. She was faithful to her family. She was faithful to the Lord. And I'm not saying she probably didn't have doubts along the way or questions along the way. None of us is perfect. All of us have those questions in our minds when things like that happen to us. But as we talked about last week, the Lord doesn't waste our pain. The Lord doesn't waste our suffering. C.S. Lewis says it best in The Problem of Pain. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Looking back, I am certain that the Lord was using my grandmother's pain in her own life. but He was also using it in my life as I watched her walk through this disability. And then the second response to long-term suffering, that's the first response, is the response of this guy here in our text. Jesus is walking through Bethesda. And look at verse 6 again. Let's read it again. <clears throat> 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there already a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? This is the first miracle sign that we've looked at in the Gospel of John where Jesus is the one that takes the initiative. The first two, the first miracle, Mary approaches Jesus. The second miracle, the official approaches Jesus. Here, Jesus approaches this man with a long-term disability. We don't know why Jesus chose him. Of all the people sitting around the pool of Bethesda, why he decided to choose this guy is a mystery. As you see the text play out, it's not because he was very grateful. But the text tells us that he knew he had been there a long time. This kind of gives us some insight into the supernatural kind of knowledge that Jesus has about this guy's situation. And he straight up starts off the conversation by getting to the heart of the matter. And he asks this guy if he wants to be healed. Do you want to be healed? And his response is actually very telling of the state of his heart. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going there, another steps down before me. That's not the answer to the question. It's a yes or no answer. Do you want to be healed or not? Well, this guy gives an excuse of why he can't get to the water. He doesn't answer the question. Kind of gives us some insight into this potential hopelessness this guy who's been in, had this disability for 38 years kind of finds himself in. <clears throat> and it's not hard to empathize with this guy's response, if we're being honest with ourselves. I mean, this guy's been sitting by this pool for a long time, however, that long time however long that long time is, the tech doesn't tell us. There's no person that was willing to selflessly carry this guy to the water to bear up underneath him and walk him to the pool. It's kind of the anti-Mark 2 story of the paralytic. Remember Mark chapter 2? This guy has four dudes that rip up somebody's roof to put him down before Jesus. This guy doesn't have one friend to walk him to the pool to get him to the water. He's alone. He's physically impaired, probably emotionally impaired, on the verge of hopelessness, if not already hopeless. It's not hard to understand his response. It's probably cynical. I'd be cynical too. Of course I want to be healed. What kind of question is that? What options are left for this guy? There's not a lot left for him. And here's this random guy, Jesus Christ, walking through Bethesda, something that this guy has not been able to do for 38 years, can't walk, and he comes up to him and he asks me if he wants to be healed. But now his response to Jesus in verse 7 sounds more like a crotchety old man, a curmudgeon, who's kind of upset with his state in life than somebody who possesses real hope that anything will ever change. But Jesus doesn't let his response stop him from doing the work of healing. In fact, in spite of this man's disposition, Jesus says in verse 9, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man's legs are strengthened. He gets up, takes up his bed, and he walks. A pastor, C.K. Barrett, <clears throat> he said, Just as the 38 years proved the gravity of the disease, so the carrying of the bed and walking proved the completeness of the cure. This guy's fully healed. Physically fully healed. So Jesus heals this guy in spite of this guy. And on the surface, if, we're to, if we were to stop at this point in the narrative, stop right here, this just looks like another healing of a guy who needed somebody to come alongside and heal his body. But the next verse adds a wrinkle 
that we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking this morning. And it says this. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now that day was the Sabbath. And the rest of our text with the interactions between Jesus and this formerly paralyzed man, the interactions between Jesus and these Jewish leaders need to be understood within the framework that this was the Sabbath. That John is not only writing of a miracle, but he's teaching us more fully the intent of the Sabbath and that Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the fact that this day is the Sabbath may not seem like a big deal to us, but to the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, it was a massive deal. In fact, it leads eventually to verse 16. If you look at verse 16, where the breaking of the Sabbath is one of the grounds of the Jews persecuting Jesus. So it's a big deal. It leads to not only the desire to persecute Jesus, but eventually the desire to kill Jesus. So how do, you, how do you get from healing a guy on the Sabbath to Jewish leaders wanting to persecute Jesus by the end of our verses for today? Well, <clears throat> at this point, it'd probably be helpful to define what the Sabbath is in the Bible. I think that'd be helpful for us. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to cease or to desist. The Sabbath day among the Jews was, and still is, honestly, to be observed from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, where everyone would cease to stop all work and spend the time reflecting on God as the creator and as the redeemer. And the Sabbath day has its roots in creation. If you go back to the very beginning of the created order, what did God do on the seventh day? He rested, right? Created everything in six days. On the seventh day, he ceases, he rests from his work, and he takes that day in Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, and he sets it aside as holy, and he blesses it. Now, obviously, God does not rest from his work in the same way we rest from our work. It wasn't like he was tired from creating everything in six days or anything like that at all. But he takes the day to reflect on his handiwork, to reflect on his own goodness in creating all things. And he gave his people in the Old Testament... The same command, Exodus 20, 8 through 11, to set aside one day in your work week, one day to cease from work, to meditate on the blessing of the Lord and refresh yourselves in God, to find renewal in who he is. Now, as Christians, we are not mandated by the Old Testament to observe the Sabbath as the people of Israel were. Christ has fulfilled the law. We are not bound by the law anymore to earn our righteousness by its observation. So although we are not Sabbatarians, practicers of the Sabbath in a very strict sense, the spirit of Sabbath is still very much alive and a good thing. The fact that this this rule, so to speak, was established even before the Jews were in existence in Genesis chapter 2 intends to speak to us that Sabbath is for everyone. It's not just for a certain group of people. It's for humanity, observing a time of reflection on God's goodness and His mercy and His grace and finding rest in Him. But what has happened by the first century when Jesus comes on the scene, what had happened by this time is, is the Jews of Jesus' day, for fear of violating the Sabbath law, they had created basically a bunch of Fences or other laws around the Sabbath law so that 
to break these, you're not even close to breaking the actual law. You're just breaking these other laws, right? So it's almost like you got the Sabbath. Don't obey the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath. Well, we're going to then create this fence and this fence and this fence and this fence so that you won't even come close to breaking the Sabbath because we're going to put all these other fences around, so you're not going to come close to that. But what had happened was these fences were elevated to the same state of law as the Sabbath law by the time Jesus comes on the scene. So, for example, the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral law, the oral tradition, created 39 classes of work they were not able to do on the Sabbath. And things like this, sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle, and on and on and on these things went. All right, 39 categories of laws, offenses around the one law. And then carrying one's mat as we see here in our text for today, carrying your bed, fell into one of these 39 categories, the category of you're not allowed to carry something from one domain to another. That's work as constituted by the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. So the guy wasn't violating the Sabbath command. He was violating a command around the command of the Sabbath. And to violate one aspect, as we said before, of this perceived law of these fences was to violate the law itself in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. So, these Jewish leaders see this guy carrying his bed, carrying his mat. Go, hey, what are you doing? Why are you carrying your mat? And this guy passes the blame on Jesus. He says, well, that guy that healed me told me to pick up my bed and carry it home. They say, well, what's that guy's name? I don't remember, which is crazy. You know, this guy's just been healed after 38 years of not walking. Can't remember the name of Jesus. Doesn't ask for his name. But more concerning is the fact that these Jewish leaders are more concerned about the violation of their own laws and the fact that this guy's walking after 38 years of not walking. So Jesus in verse 14, he finds this guy again in the temple, pays this guy another visit, this guy that's been healed from his affliction. And he says, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Indicating that although this guy had just had his body healed, that's not the point. He needed spiritual healing. He needed spiritual restoration. Which leads to the first thing John is trying to teach us with regard to the Sabbath in our text for this morning. The first thing, and it's this. Sabbath is designed to restore us to wholeness. Sabbath is designed to restore us to wholeness, not just to cease from working, but actually restore something. You give up something to gain something. As we mentioned before, the Sabbath was a gift from God, a day which he blessed and set aside as holy. The man in this text who was healed experienced a physical Sabbath, did he not? He was given rest from his affliction. Rest from his disease. But the point of the healing was he needed rest from his spiritual disease, his spiritual sickness, that which plagued his soul. You know, we talked about this, this a little last week with the healing of the official son and how it led to the entire household putting their faith in Christ. But the Sabbath, physically resting from literal labor and work, reminds us of the need for spiritual rest 
a spiritual rest that can only be found in Jesus, that we can experience now in the already, but also a spiritual rest that is to come in the not yet. So how does the Sabbath remind us of our need for spiritual rest? Well, for one, taking time to set aside and rest and reflect on God's character and his goodness reminds us that in Christ, we are now able to rest from our works. In Christ, we're now able to rest from our works. St. Augustine said this, He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless, looking for something that will satisfy them, that will give them rest, and they're only found, they only find rest in the person of Jesus Christ. If you were to do a biblical canonical survey of the word Sabbath, of just Sabbath from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you would see that in the garden... The Garden of Eden, true Sabbath was manifested as it should have been. Adam and Eve, no sin, no striving to earn God's favor, no working, right? No working to attain righteousness of any sort, completely at rest, reflecting in God's goodness and his gracious provision in the garden. But as sin and death entered into the created order, as sin and death came in, Sabbath rest was lost. Sabbath moved from a lived reality to a future promise. It was experienced, but then it had to become a promise after it was lost. That's why the promised land was such a big deal in the Old Testament. To Abraham, Genesis 12, and on and on through the patriarchs and the people of Israel. A land free from fighting and striving and slavery where we're free to be at peace and enjoy God and his provision. Yeah, I'll take that. But when Israel enters into the land, enters that rest, so to speak, as Hebrews 4 talks about, they lose it because of sin. Then here comes Jesus, the fulfillment of everything Old Testament. See, the promised land in the Old Testament, the land of Canaan, was only a shadow of the rest we enter into by grace through faith in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.3, says that we who have believed enter that rest. For just as God rested on the seventh day from his works, so we who have trusted in Christ rest from our works as well. I mentioned this phrase last week. Uh, It's a phrase you may be familiar with, maybe not. But it's this phrase, already not yet. Already not yet. It kind of describes this, uh, this lived tension that we find ourselves in as believers in this world. We have already been made holy by God's grace through faith in Christ. We've been set apart for a specific purpose. But we're not yet made holy in our character. That's a part of sanctification, that God every day is making us more to the image of Christ. Or that we are already, we already experience the benefits of eternal life, peace, security in Christ. But we have not yet fully attained that yet, right? Because we still live in a sin-stained world. Already, not yet. So living in this tension of the already, not yet, we have already, in a sense, entered the Sabbath rest found in Jesus. For no work remains for us to do to earn our righteousness. That Christ, Jesus, has achieved that for us. And so our response to his work, to his uh, achievement for us of righteousness from God, our response is we rest from striving. We rest from our work and we try to try and earn his favor. 
God's favor rests on us because God's favor rests on Christ and we are in him. The work is done, so we rest from our works. But how many of us in this room, myself included, fail to live in this already reality? The reality that Sabbath is extended to us by way of Christ. Some of us sitting here, we feel like we have to continually be getting ourselves right and straight before God will extend His acceptance to us. And so we work, and we work, and we work. We're at every church function. We're at every Bible study. We give regularly. We're here every Sunday. We're serving in a variety of capacities, not because we really enjoy those things, but because we feel like we have to pay this penance to earn favor from God for things that we've done in the past or in the present, mistakes we made then and now. We have to earn our approval. We work and we work and we work. We lay our heads down at night on our pillows and we think in our minds, did I do enough? Is God pleased with me? Did I do enough to earn his favor today? You may be thinking, well, that's not me. I don't say, what? Well, great. But the test to that is how you respond when you find yourself on the back end of sinning. You may think, well, I'm not legalistic. I'm a grace person. Praise the Lord. But does sin cripple you? Do you find yourself questioning how the Lord of the body of Christ will view you when you sin? Do you feel less accepted by God when you sin? Do you feel overwhelming shame and guilt that causes you to withdraw from the body of Christ and the Lord himself when you sin? I'd venture to say that if you answered yes to any of those questions, that there's still some sort of works-based righteousness mixed in your gospel. That's why we need to be reminded of the gospel daily, because we forget it. We forget it, so we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Yeah, the discipline of the Lord is real. Yes, the conviction of the Spirit is real and a gift of God's grace. But shame from the enemy drives you to despair. It causes you to spiral even further down in your sin. But conviction from the Spirit leads you to repentance. One drives you to further bondage. One leads you to freedom. Where are you right now? Do you truly believe the gospel? That you are accepted by God because of Christ. You are free to rest in the finished work of Christ, Christian. There is nothing else for you to do, nothing else for you to do, but rest and rejoice in God's grace and favor towards you in him. So Sabbath rest isn't already, it's already been accomplished, it's already something we can experience, right? There's a not yet component to Sabbath rest where we anticipate a future Sabbath rest from sin and suffering. We live in the reality that we have been set free from the penalty of sin, right? Christ on the cross absorbed the wrath of God towards us. We have been, there's no penalty left for us to pay. We have been absolved in Jesus Christ. Praise Him. But the truth is that sin still wars in us, right? I mean, this is Paul in Romans 7. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. What a wretched man that I am. 
It's this inner battle that sin wages. The old man and the new man coming to heads every single day. But the hope of the gospel is that we are not only freed from the penalty of sin, which happened at the cross, but we are being freed from the power of sin by the Holy Spirit. It's called sanctification, where the Spirit of God is making us more and more Christ-like every day. Even if we don't feel like it, He's doing a work in us. That the desires for sin become less and the desires for holiness become greater. But listen, listen. If there's a word to the person in this room that is battling, feeling accepted by God in favor with God because of their sin, then there's a word for us collectively as God's people. We need to, we need to understand and realize that we don't live in an idealistic Christian community. All right? None of us has arrived. None of us. None of us is sin-free. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, he calls this, this idealistic picture of the Christian community a wish dream. And he says this, he says, Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins. Forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. He goes on to say, if you want to be in the Christian community and you have this wish dream picture of what the community will be like, it needs to die. You need to kill it. Because every person in this room is a sinner. Been redeemed. We are being redeemed, already not yet. But we still battle sin. This does not imply that sin carries with it no consequences or sin will be swept under the rug. God himself did not sweep our sin under the rug, but he sent his son to the cross. He dealt with it. Sin is costly, no doubt. Sin is costly. It costs cost us so much. But when we look upon not only our own sins, church, but when we look upon the sins of others, may we, may we approach those people with the same amount of grace and compassion, and care, and love that Christ Jesus has extended towards us. Sabbath reminds us that we have not arrived yet, but that we await a time when not only will the penalty and power of sin be broken and done away with, but when the presence of sin will also be done away with. There's a Sabbath rest yet to come, when Christ comes to deliver us from this present broken world and places us in his heavenly country where sin and death are no more. And we will rest from brokenness and pain and death. So Sabbath not only reminds us from this text that we have rested from works already, that we will rest from sin and pain, not yet, in the future. But it also shows us that Sabbath communicates that while we rest, we trust God is working. While we rest, we trust God is working. Verse 17, Jesus says in his response to the charges that he violated the Sabbath, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Sabbath is an act of faith. 
And in the Old Testament, taking a day off work meant you're leaving your crops dormant for a day. That your business wouldn't be open for 24 hours. In our culture, there's always another hour to work. There's always another paper to write, another dollar to earn, another crop to grow, another errand to run, another task to perform. Sabbath is demonstrating to God that we trust Him. Even when we rest to reflect on His goodness, that we are also acknowledging that He will provide for us. We live in a culture of workaholics and busybodies. Every single person in this room is busy more than bored. Pew Research did a study um, and found that 60% of American adults say they're too busy to enjoy life. So more than half of Americans are so busy that they can't even stop and find any pleasure in living, <laughs> in living itself. And in our culture of going and going and going that we all find ourselves in, we need to be about creating in us the discipline to stop, to set aside the email, to put down the phone, to take a breather, to replenish ourselves with joy and rest from the Spirit and trust that God is working in us and will take care of our needs. Very practically, very practically, this is not rocket science, uh, this may look like something as simple as making a list of things that bring you joy and taking a day to do them. I mean, for me, I love spending time with my family. I love early mornings before the sun comes up. I love having a good cup of coffee. I love reading a good book, preferably by dead people. I love having a good meal. I mean, these are just simple things that God has given us in His grace to be enjoyed, that stir up my affections for the Lord, the giver of those things, but also replenish my soul that I need on a regular basis. But the hard part is taking the discipline to set aside my work. You set aside the email, to set aside the phone. The emails and phone calls that most of the time, nine out of ten times, can wait until later. And trusting that the Lord's going to work out the details. You know, oftentimes this, this makes working harder the other six days even more of a priority. Preparing for Sabbath, right? But even so, trusting the Lord is working even when I'm not is something Sabbath reminds us of. Sabbath develops our faith and our trust in God. And then lastly, here as we begin to close, Sabbath propels worship of Christ as God. Sabbath propels worship of Christ as God. Verse 18. <clears throat> this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. You know, there was a theological debate in the first century, uh, even before the first century, of well, if God gave us the command of Sabbath and he works on the Sabbath, is he violating the Sabbath? And the conclusion they reached, which I love, love this conclusion, is that God doesn't violate the Sabbath. God doesn't move one thing from one domain to the other because the entire universe is his domain. There is no other domain. So Jesus, calling God his Father, is making himself equal with God, associating his own work with the work of the Father, saying, 
My domain is everything. John is the most explicit with the claims of Christ of any of the gospel writers in the New Testament. Judaism had a category for God as our father, but they had no category for God as my father. It's a corporate identification of the Son of God being Israel. No individualistic idea of God as my father. Jesus is not equal with God as a competing God. He's not equal with God as another God. He himself is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is God incarnate. He is the one who put on flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14, the second person of the eternal trinity. And this is where all of history is heading. This is what Sabbath reminds us of. That future full Sabbath rest is not just heaven with all its amenities, but that future full Sabbath rest is a place where we will finally be in the presence, finally and fully of the reigning Christ. Where we will behold the one who declares in Revelation chapter 1, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Death will die when we sit with Christ, when he reigns fully and destroys death and Hades, for he holds the keys. In Sabbath we rest, and in Sabbath we worship. We worship the source and the hope of our eternal rest, and to him we go now. So let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for rest. Thank you, O oh God, that we can lay our heads down on a pillow at night to sleep, knowing that if you took us that night, That rest has been achieved for us because of Christ. We can go to bed at peace because the work of Christ has achieved for us that which we cannot work to achieve. May we as your people, Father, may we as your people practice pause. May we not lose sight on a daily, weekly basis of how good you've been to us. But may we take joy in the fact that you have made us into mortal beings that need rest, physical rest, but not only physical rest, but spiritual rest to restore our souls in Christ. I pray this week, O oh God, that you give us time, time to stop, time to rest, time to thank you and rejoice in the goodness you've shown us in Christ. May you be honored, not just with our working, but from our resting. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel 
church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.